everyone wants to change the world. There's no doubt about that. We all know there's something wrong with the world, and most of us have at least some idea of how things could be better, things we'd like to see happen differently. Of course, this is true for non-Christians as well. Non-Christians of various sorts also want to see the world changed. But we as Christians, we have a very specific vision of how we want to see the world change. We've got a very different vision of what that change should look like than non-Christians do. Christians are committed to being world changers. We have been given a mission to disciple the nations. That is a mission of world change, of world transformation. So we all want to change the world. We know things are not as they should be. The question is how? How do we go about changing the world? The reality is most of us, if we're honest, we seem to have very little power to change things. And even those who do seem to have more power than us, maybe because of their political office or because of their great wealth or because of their influence, still they can't do a whole lot to remake the world the way they would like it either. Of course, the way we as Christians want to change the world brings us into conflict with the way other groups want to change the world. This is what the so-called culture wars are all about. But I would argue that God has given to his people a very special weapon, a very special weapon with world-changing power that no other group has. It's a very powerful tool we can use to shape the world according to God's will and purposes. And if we're not seeing that happen, perhaps it is because we are not wielding this weapon the way we should. We're not using this very powerful tool God has given to us in the way that we should. I'm talking, of course, about prayer. It's interesting, when we talk about changing the world, we tend to put so much emphasis on politics and on political activism and getting certain candidates elected and then devising the most effective strategies for persuading others and we get into the media and whatnot. These are all things that people focus on. And I would say all of those things can be useful. They all have their place. We need Christians involved in politics and political activism and running for office and in the media. All these things are all very important, very valid. But this is what we must remember. We will not overcome the world using the world's weapons. We need a weapon. No other group has a weapon that cannot be matched, a weapon for which there is no countermeasure. And again, that weapon is prayer. How do we change the world? We pray. How do we change the world? We cast ourselves on God in utter dependence upon him in prayer. Ultimately, we are fighting a spiritual battle that requires spiritual weapons. This is true in the bat for the battle in our own hearts, certainly, uh, as we wage a battle in our own hearts against the sins that tempt us and would, would ensnare us and entangle us. We must pray if we want to have victory, if we want to have victory over sin in our own lives. We've got to pray. That's where the power is found. But it's also true in the battle for the world, the battle for the soul of the world, the battle to change the world. As we seek to disciple the nations, how do we go about it? What's going to make our work in these ways effective? Prayer. We must be a praying people. If we do not pray, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. 
The world is always going to defeat the church when the church tries to fight using only the world's weapons. If we want the church to have power in the world, to be successful in the mission God has given to her, we must pray. If we want victory in our own lives over sin and temptation, again, we must practice prayer. And I would say, despite the fact that Christians talk about prayer a lot, despite the fact that we hear sermons on prayer and read books on prayer all the time, uh, despite churches like ours having regular times of prayer during the week and, of course, corporate prayer in the gathered Lord's Day liturgy, I would say prayer still remains greatly underrated and greatly underutilized. And I want to show you today why that's a big mistake. I want to see if I can inspire you to pray more diligently and more fervently. I want to see if I can inspire you to pray more regularly, more consistently, more passionately. This sermon is a prayer challenge, but I'm not just challenging challenging you about prayer. I also want to fill you with confidence about prayer, why you should pray boldly, confidently, with expectation, with anticipation that God will do great things. Uh, We read from Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, three verses, and I want to pick out here three important truths about prayer in that section at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. The possibility of prayer, the perspective of prayer, and the power of prayer. Those last two will shade into one another, but those are the three things. The possibility of prayer, the perspective of prayer, and the power of prayer. So first consider the possibility of prayer. This is the most basic question about prayer that you can ask. The most basic question there is, how can we pray and expect to be heard by the living God? Why should we think our prayers get past the ceiling? Why should we think that when we pray, God listens? Why should we think that when we pray, God hears and then God acts? Well, we can know that our prayers get above the ceiling because, as Hebrews 4 tells us, we have a high priest who has ascended above the heavens. Our prayers get above the ceiling because we have a priest who has ascended above the heavens. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The priestly ministry of Jesus is the basis of the Christian's prayer life. Our prayers are based on his priesthood. That is the great truth. That's why prayer is possible. We can pray to the Father because the Son prays to the Father for us. We can pray to the Father because the Son is in heaven and has made a way into heaven for us. Our prayers get above the ceiling because in prayer we ascend above the ceiling. You've heard me mention recently that priests in the Old Covenant were basically housekeepers for God. Uh, They kept up God's house. They would guard and maintain holy space. In the Old Covenant, priests were responsible to stand and serve in the presence of God. They maintained the altar fires, for example. They were, you could say, the bouncers or the gatekeepers to make sure that no unauthorized persons entered into God's house. They helped worshipers who drew near to offer sacrifice. They tended to God's table, preparing food for God and the worshipers. They would teach God's word to the people in God's presence because the core of the word, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten words were kept in the heart of the house in the most holy place. 
And so to sum up the job of the priest, you could say they served God in his house. They were household servants. And by serving God in his house, they served the people who came into his house. And so Psalm 134 calls priests servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord. The prophet Joel calls them servants of the Lord and servants of the altar. They serve the Lord and they serve those who come to worship the Lord. Now think about this. Hebrews 4 tells us Jesus is our great high priest. And of course we know we are priests as well because we are in union with him. He serves in God's house, in God's throne room as this passage says. That means, yes, he serves his father in his father's house, in his father's heavenly house, but it also means he serves us in God's house. As a priest, he made the ultimate sacrifice when he laid down his life on the cross. As a priest, he ascended into the heavenly sanctuary to continue his ministry, now a ministry of intercession based on his once and for all all offering. What is the ministry of Jesus in this present moment? It is entirely, you could say, a ministry of prayer. What is Jesus doing right now? He is praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for His church, that's what Jesus does as a priest. That's how he maintains the house of God, by constantly interceding for us. As high priest, he is mediator. He serves as a mediator, representing us to God and God to us. And of course, he does this in a a unique way, unlike what any of the old covenant priests could do. As a priest, he is a man of the people. He is one of us and one with us. He is like us in every way, except for sin. But as a priest, he is also a man of God. In fact, he is the ultimate priest because he is God. He is one with God because he is God's eternal son. So as priest, he is a man of the people, and he is also a man of God. Indeed, he is God. And so as the God-man, he is the perfect go-between, the perfect mediator, the perfect bridge between sinful people and a holy God. He is the ultimate priest, and this is why he has opened up a way into the house of God for us. This is the really amazing thing. It's not just that Jesus goes into God's heavenly house on our behalf, that's amazing enough, but it's that he makes a way for us to be where he is, to enter that heavenly house as well. The old covenant Levitical priest would go into the most holy place one day a year. The high priest, the Levitical high priest, would go into the most holy place one day a year on the day of atonement. And then, of course, he would come back out. But Jesus has gone into the most heavenly, into the most holy place of heaven, the heavenly most holy place. He has gone into into this place to stay. He doesn't continually stand to minister like old covenant priests who continually stood in the presence of God to carry out their ministry. No, we're told here, he has taken his seat at his Father's right hand on the throne of grace. And note that it is a throne, so he's not only a priest, he is also a king. He's not only our great high priest, he's also king of kings and lord of lords. We're going to come to that part of it in just a few minutes. But note, the throne on which he is seated is a throne of grace is a throne of grace because the one seated there is the embodiment of grace, the incarnation of God's grace. But again, here's the point. Prayer is a possibility because the priestly ministry of Jesus has opened a way into heaven for us. He has connected us with the Father. He's called Son of God, there in verse 14, to remind us that he has a Father 
And he brings us to the Father. He brings our prayers to the Father. He came to be the way, the truth, and the life to be our way back to our Heavenly Father. Of course, Jesus didn't sacrifice animals like the Levitical priest did in the Old Covenant. No, he sacrificed himself. He is both priest and offering, priest and sacrifice. He offered himself on the cross, and he didn't pass through a curtain on earth. He passed through the heavens into the true, most holy place. And so Jesus is in heaven right now. And because Jesus is in heaven, because he is in the heavenly, most holy place, when we approach God in prayer through him, he can be the one to give us access to the Father. He is the one who presents our prayers to the Father in his own name. That's how we know our prayers will be heard, because our prayers are hand-delivered to the Father by Jesus himself. We're told here he is a sympathetic high priest. That means he has compassion on us. Oh, how great is his compassion for his people. How great is his compassion for his people. Verse 15 says he can sympathize with us in our weakness because he was tempted in all points as we are, but he did not sin. He is a sinless sympathizer with sinners. He knows what it's like to go through the battle of temptation. What it's like to have to live in a fallen world and wrestle with Satan and with the curse. He is a sympathetic priest. And that means you can trust him. When you have a sympathetic priest, that means you can trust that priest. You can entrust your heart and your life to that priest. See, we belong to him. He cares for us. He loves us. And this is really, I think, what, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here. It is not as though when he ascended into heaven, he forgot about what things are like on earth. It's not as if when he ascends into heaven, he forgets about us down here. No, he continues to be sympathetic with us, and indeed he makes a way for us so we can enter into the heavenly sanctuary as well. Again, this is interesting. Another thing to know about the old covenant high priest is that he would wear a breastplate with 12 precious stones over his heart, representing, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. So when the high priest went into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, he had the people of Israel on his heart. Well, Jesus has you on his heart as he is seated in the heavens. He loves you. He's praying for you continually. He's ministering in God's house on your behalf. And all this ties in with his sympathy. See, when Jesus came into our world, he really entered into our situation, our fallen situation. He entered into our plight. You could say, in the wilderness, east of Eden. He didn't enter the Garden of Eden the way Adam was made in the beginning. No, he entered into the wilderness, into this fallen world. And he faced everything Satan could throw at him, every category of temptation. He struggled with it, he wrestled with it, and he ultimately defeated it. So he knows what it's like to live in a fallen world. He's well acquainted with suffering, with loss, with grief, and yes, even with death itself. He has taken on our hardships and he has taken up our cause. He endured great injustice and cruelty and false accusation. Yes, he faced Satan one-on-one -on -one in the wilderness when Satan brought temptation to him. But of course, he was really doing battle with Satan throughout the whole course of his life. 
He was tempted to idolatry. He was tempted to self-righteous anger. He was tempted to lust. He was tempted to greed. He was tempted to theft. He was tempted to despair and hopelessness in times of trial. And yet every single one of these temptations, he overcame. In fact, his temptations were much harder than ours because the longer you hold out, the more the pressure mounts. It's one thing to suppress unrighteous anger for two minutes, but imagine doing it for two hours or two weeks or two years. Imagine doing it for the whole of your life. That's what Jesus did, constantly defeating temptation. The longer you hold out against temptation, the more tempting the temptation becomes. And yet Jesus defeated temptation through the whole course of his life. And because he has been victorious, and because he is sympathetic with us with our plight, he can now empower us to have victory as well. We are weak. Yes, the text tells us that. We are weak. We know that about ourselves, but he is strong, and he can give us his strength so we can share in his victory. Now, obviously, all of this that Jesus did contributes to our salvation. But it also serves as the basis for prayer. And that's why verse 16, describing prayer, says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace to get the help we need. Because of what Jesus has done, because of the kind of great high priest he is, because of where he is seated on the Father's the Father's right hand on the throne of grace, because of all of these things, we can pray with boldness and confidence. Jesus' ministry for us now in the present is a ministry of prayer. He prays for us. He is the mediator of our prayers, delivering our prayers to the Father. He has entered heaven, which means he is no longer subject to temptation himself, but he hasn't forgotten what it's like. He continues to sympathize with us. He is willing and able to help us as our compassionate high priest. He feels your pain, and he helps all who call on him to fight the good fight of faith. Jesus has ascended, so our prayers can ascend. Jesus has ascended, so we can ascend in prayer. When we pray, we can enter the heavenly sanctuary as well. His priesthood makes our prayers possible. But that brings us really to the second truth here, the perspective that prayer gives us. Prayer gives us a whole new way of looking at the world. This tells us the place of prayer, that is the location of prayer, where we go to when we pray. In prayer, we come before the throne of grace in heaven. I've mentioned that, but let's think about that a little bit more. What this means is this. Prayer gives you throne room perspective on reality. Not just an earthly perspective, not just an earthbound view of things, but prayer gives you a throne room perspective on reality, a heavenly perspective. Now, I don't mean that it enables us to understand everything God is doing in the world. No, certainly not. But prayer does open our eyes to realities we would otherwise miss. Give you an example of this. One thing you see throughout Scripture is that prayer is set over and against anxiety. It's as if prayer and anxiety are wrestling in the heart of the Christian. And anxiety wants to get the other upper hand, and the way you fight back is through prayer. Prayer is the great antidote to anxiety. Why? Because in prayer, we cast our cares upon God, knowing he cares for us. So prayer can make your anxieties and your fears simply melt away. When we pray, we come to see that the fears and anxieties that plague us are really not that big a deal because they're small and trivial compared to the greatness of the God we serve. 
Those fears and anxieties that so easily grip our hearts are not really worth the time and attention we give them. And so we should never let a spirit of anxiety drive out the Holy Spirit of God. Because the spirit of anxiety is full of lies and deceit. Prayer is the way to break free from the grip of anxiety. It's prayer versus anxiety. Prayer versus fear. That's the battle taking place in the heart of every Christian. And if you obey your anxieties rather than praying, you're just going to make things that much worse. No, fight against your anxieties through prayer. The battle in the Christian heart is a battle between anxiety and prayer. And it is prayer that will defeat anxiety and drive it out. And the way prayer does this is by giving us a heavenly perspective on our lives. We get throne room perspective. I want you to think about this. In prayer, we enter the heavenly throne room. I can't go into all the detail of what this means this morning, but if you want to know more of what that throne room looks like, go read Revelation 4 and 5, because that's the fullest description we have of the heavenly throne room in all of Scripture. In Revelation 4, the very beginning of the chapter, John, as a representative of the church, is caught up into the throne room of God. He's taken up into the throne room of God to join in the prayer and the worship that's taking place there. John's in the throne room, and he describes what he sees. And he sees the throne of grace, that same throne that Hebrews 4 is talking about. John sees it in Revelation 4 and 5. That's the throne of grace with the lamb seated on the throne, the lamb who was slain seated on that throne. That's why it's a throne of grace. Now, obviously, in prayer and worship, as we're doing this morning, we enter that heavenly throne room by faith, not by sight. We don't get to see it and sense it in the same way that John But Revelation shows us what's really happening when we worship, when we pray. It gives us a picture of what it's like to be in the throne room of God. When you pray, you need to learn to picture yourself in the midst of John's vision in Revelation 4 and 5 because that's where you are during worship and prayer. That's the reality. That's what's actually happening. You are standing before the throne of grace. You're approaching the throne of grace to get help in time of need. And you will see that throne of grace, that's the center. That's where all the action in the world, everything that happens, proceeds from and flows out of that throne of grace in the heavenly sanctuary. So here's the key thing to see. When we ascend to the throne of grace in prayer, the things we are praying about often begin to look very different. Sometimes the reason our problems look so big is because we are too close to them. They're right in front of us. They block our vision. We can't see anything else. The problem I'm dealing with is so big. But in prayer, what happens? In prayer, we ascend to the heavenly throne and we get a whole different perspective on the problems of life. How do you think your personal problems look from the Father's right hand? If you were at the Father's right hand in heaven looking down on the problems of your life, how would they look from that vantage point? That's what prayer does for you. It gives you a new way of seeing. Even the much larger geopolitical problems. I mean, obviously the world's a mess. Even those problems look very different, much more manageable, frankly much smaller from the Father's right hand. There's nothing going on in the world today that God can't handle. Nothing happening in the world today that's not part of his plan. Nothing happening in the world today that didn't come straight from that throne in heaven that you see in Revelation 4 and 5. Give you another example of this. Think about the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. This is man's great act of rebellion against God. 
Uh, all of mankind at this point is united in idolatry. They're not scattering out to, to multiply and fill the earth the way God had commanded. Instead, they bunched up together, and they're going to build a tower into the heavens. It's as if they're going to storm God's throne and, and stage a coup and take over the rule of the universe. So they're building a tower to the heavens, and what happens? Is God on the edge of his seat in heaven, wringing his hands, hoping somehow uh, the, the, the plans of, of men against him are foiled. Now, actually, it's really kind of funny what Genesis 11 says. The text says God had to come down just to get a good look at the tower they were building. God had to come down to get a good look at it, and then, of course, God judged them for it. He confused their languages, and that forced them to scatter out as God has that intended. The Tower of Babel did not look that big from heaven. In fact, God mocked it. God made fun of it. God laughed at the pretensions of men. This looked like the, 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 uh, an insurmountable problem standing in the way of the fulfillment of God's purposes in the history of the world. And what does God do? God's got to come down just to get a good look at it. It's such a small problem from his vantage point in heaven. God's got to come down. God mocks it. God laughs at the rebellion of men. God laughs at the, the foolish pretensions of men. When we pray, we can start to laugh at them as well. Because prayer gives us a whole new perspective on life, a whole new perspective on reality. Here's another example. Take Asaph in Psalm 73. We read the whole psalm this morning. It's really a, a beautiful psalm. And uh, it's a really interesting psalm. At the beginning of Psalm 73, Asaph is troubled because the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. Does that sound familiar? That's a common problem throughout history. Times when it seems that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. The world is not as it should be, and Asaph knows it. And for him, this creates a crisis of faith. He says he almost stumbled in his walk. His foot nearly slipped. It's so painful for him to look at this situation, to take it all in. He even contemplates whether or not his own righteousness, his attempts to live a righteous life, have been in vain. Is he wasting his time seeking to serve God when it seems that the wicked are the ones who are prospering while the righteous suffer? He was ready to despair. Until, until verse 17 until he says, I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And that's where the whole psalm changes. The whole outlook of the psalm changes. What brought about this transformation in Asaph's way of seeing and interpreting and evaluating the world around him? It was entering God's sanctuary, God's throne room. When he entered the sanctuary, it gave him a whole new vantage point, an entirely new perspective through which to look at his circumstances and the circumstances of the world. He realizes even if the wicked are prospering, it's just for the moment. They're going to be brought for destruction. Judgment is coming. They're being fattened for the day of slaughter. See, when Asaph goes to the Lord in prayer, in worship, when he ascends into the sanctuary, he grasps the bigger picture. See, prayer is transformational. It transforms us. It transforms the way we see the world. Prayer sharpens and refines our worldview. Spending time in God's throne room increases our wisdom. And so Asaph closes the psalm. He says, those who are far from you 
will perish, but it is good for me to draw near to God. He's contrasting those who pray and worship the living God with those who don't, those who stay far away, they will perish. Those who draw near in prayer and in worship, that's good. That's going to lead to a good end. Drawing near, of course, simply means coming to the throne of grace. As Asaph came before the throne of grace, what happened? His confidence was restored. Prayer gave Asaph wings to soar above the problems that had bogged him down. These problems are dragging him down. When he prays, what happens? He's given wings so he can fly, so he can soar. When you pray, you can soar above it all. You get this throne room perspective. You get this heavenly perspective on life. What's interesting is that all of the psalms of Asaph, and there's a whole collection of psalms uh, that we have in the Psalter from Asaph, they are what could be called divine counsel psalms. Several of them have to do with the psalmist entering the divine sanctuary and therefore becoming part of the divine counsel. Those who come into God's presence are council members, you could say. We're members of the heavenly council through prayer, through worship. See, when God calls on us to pray, when he invites us to pray, it really means God is taking counsel with his people. Now, in an ultimate sense, of course, God needs no counselor. Nobody can be God's counselor. But God, in his humility and his compassion, in his desire to see us mature and grow in wisdom and God-likeness, God invites us to become his counselors. Like a wise husband listening to his wife's input before making a decision for his household. So God listens to his bride. He listens to his people. And that's what's happening in prayer. God gives you his ear. God says, what do you think we ought to do? What do you think we ought to do about this situation going on over in Ukraine? What do you think we ought to do about what's going on in Washington, D.C. or in Montgomery? Or with your neighbor or with your child? God says, what do you think we ought to do? Prayer is your opportunity to give God your input. It's like a king summoning his nobles to his court so he can consult with them. It's like the president in the Oval Office calling in his cabinet as his his advisors, his cabinet members. In prayer, the ruler of the universe invites us into his throne room and he allows us to give our input, to share our deepest thoughts and desires. Yes, God is sovereign. God has planned all things from beginning to end. God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And yet, we also have to say the prayers of his people are a part of that. Somehow, in the mystery of God's sovereignty, our prayers fit into God's eternal purposes. And so there are certain things that if you don't pray for them, they will not happen. If you do pray for them, they will. Prayer really does change things. In prayer, we enter into the heavenly throne room. We enter into the oval office of the universe. We are friends of the king invited into his inner chamber to share our thoughts and desires with him, to bring our petitions before him. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the preeminent human council members. So, for example, Abraham is the first to be called a prophet, and we see his prophethood play out as God consults with him as a council member about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. God basically says to Abraham, hey Abraham, what do you think we ought to do about Sodom and Gomorrah? God's saying to us right now, hey, what do you think we ought to do about Pride Month? What should we do? Abraham, in a very real sense, holds the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah in his hands through his prayers. In Jeremiah 23, the Lord says, the false prophets do not stand in the counsel of the Lord. The contrast then, of course, what that means is True prophets do stand in the counsel of the Lord. 
In Amos chapter 3, the prophet says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And then the book of Amos gives us an illustration of this in chapter 7. Amos hears that God is going to judge Israel. He hears God threaten judgment against Israel because of Israel's sin. And so what does Amos do? As a council member, he intercedes. He prays to God on behalf of Israel. He prays for God to relent. God does. God holds off the judgment because of the prayers of Amos. That's what it means to be a council member. That's the kind of sway you have with God. And this really brings us to the third truth here, the power of prayer. Why is prayer powerful? Because prayer is influence with God. Prayer means God has opened himself up to hear what you have to say. If we enter the sanctuary, we are priests. But if the sanctuary is also a throne room and we are there, it means we are kings. In prayer, we exercise a royal power. That's why in 1 Peter 2, Peter calls the church a royal priesthood. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says we are both kings and priests to God because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has consecrated us and made us both kings and priests to God. In prayer, we do not merely exercise our role of priests serving in God's house. We also act as kings reigning over all things in union with the Lord Jesus. See, in prayer, we exercise a kind of heavenly dominion, a kind of throne room power. In prayer, we lay hold of the greatest power there is in the universe, the power that created the universe. Prayer is power. It is power in the form of mercy and help God promises to give to those who cry out to him which means power to defeat temptation and overcome the sin that entangles you. It means power to effect change in the world. In prayer, we are exercising authority, royal authority, authority in the form of influence with God. We have been given a kingdom. That's how Jesus spoke to his disciples in Luke 21. It's the Father's pleasure to give us the kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we are told that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we're seated on that throne with him. What Hebrews 4 is saying is that in the new covenant, we are all members of the divine council. We are all kings in King Jesus. And this gives great power to our prayers. We are God's nobles. We are God's cabinet members. I dare say we are God's advisors. Again, not because he needs us to be, but because he wants us. Think of it this way. Who are the most powerful people in the world today? Who are the most powerful people in the world today? Would you say President Biden? I don't think he's actually the most powerful person. Uh, but that's what some people would say, President Biden, right? Or some people might say, oh, Jeff Bezos or, or, or uh, Elon Musk. People with civil office or with incredible wealth. They're the most powerful. No! No, they are not. The most powerful people in the world today are the people of God. The most powerful people in the world today are people who pray to our Heavenly Father in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of His Holy Spirit. Those are the most powerful people in the world. Those are the people who can make things happen. The most powerful people in the world are not the people the world thinks of as powerful. No, it is the praying people of God. You can ask the question this way. What is the most powerful institution in the world? 
What's the most powerful institution? Is it the United States of America? Is it China? Is it Russia? Is it the media conglomerates? What's the most powerful institution in the world today? The, the, the right answer, the biblical answer is clear. It is the faithful church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body and his bride, is the most powerful institution in the world. Because prayer is power. Prayer is power. It is royal power. It is throne room power. A praying church will always be a powerful church. A church or a Christian that neglects prayer, by contrast, a, a, a church or a Christian that refuses to pray in line with God's will, God's word, squanders its power and becomes powerless, becomes weak. Revelation 8 is a good illustration of how prayer works, how prayer makes things happen. Revelation chapter 8, it says, The prayers of the saints ascend before God like incense. Our prayers go up to the heavenly throne room, and then what happens? Our prayers ascend like incense, and then fire gets thrown down on earth in response to those prayers. Fire is cast down on the earth. Now, there's two well-known cases where fire falls from heaven to earth in Scripture. you got Genesis 18, where fire falls on Sodom to destroy it. And you got Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the fire of the Spirit falls on Jerusalem to save it. But this is the point. When our prayers go up, fire comes down. It might be the fire of judgment if we're asking God to destroy his enemies, or it could be the fire of the Spirit to save and transform as we ask God to save the nation. But Revelation 8 shows the history-making, world-transforming power of prayer. Through prayer, we cast down fire from on high. We cast down the heavenly fire upon the earth. See, we may not have the ear of earthly kings. Joe Biden's not calling up any of us to ask what he ought to do. We may not have the ear of earthly kings, but we do have the ear of of the King of Kings. And that's what counts. We have throne room power. Our prayers shape our own lives and the lives of those around us. Our prayers shape history. Praying is an act of authority. It is a kingly act. Through prayer, we rule. Through prayer, we exercise heavenly dominion. We extend the dominion of the kingdom of Christ on earth as we pray for it in heaven. Give you another example of this. In 2 Kings, the Israelites were in grave danger. The Assyrians were threatening. They were the superpower of the day, and now they're on Israel's doorstep. The Assyrians have been wiping out one nation after another, and now they're coming for Israel. And so King Hezekiah, what does he do? King Hezekiah in Israel, he goes to the Lord in prayer, and he prays, O God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. That is to say, O God of Israel, in your heavenly throne room, you know, the, the, the cherubim there, that's, a, that's the Ark of the Covenant, obviously. So he's praying to God in his heavenly throne room. Hezekiah says, Hear the words of Sennacherib, O Lord, as he mocks you. He has laid waste to many nations and lands, and so now, O Lord, I pray for you to save us from his hand that all the, the peoples of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That was Hezekiah's prayer. I know Assyria is right on our doorstep. They're about to invade. Lord, rescue us that your fame may spread throughout the nations. With the fate of Israel hanging in the balance, what is Hezekiah's 
most important response is not a military response or a political response. It is a liturgical response. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And what happened? God listened. God answered. And Israel was spared in Hezekiah's day. Indeed, God says in response to Hezekiah's prayer, the Assyrians shall not come to you or your city, for I will defend it and save it. Hezekiah's prayer saved a nation from almost certain ruin. Israel is about to be destroyed. Hezekiah prays and the nation is spared. That's what happened. Prayer saved the people. Let me give you another example of this from, from later church history. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer of the 16th century, he cried out to God in prayer, O Lord, give me Scotland lest I die. His prayer was for his people to save his nation. One time he said he had been praying for two straight nights for the Scottish church. And this is how he describes it. And listen to this because this ties in so many themes we're talking about this morning. This is how he describes his prayer. He says, I have called out to God for her, that is for Scotland. I have commended her to Christ, her head. I have been fighting against Satan. See, he understands, prayer is spiritual warfare. I have been fighting against Satan who is ever ready to assault. I have been in heaven. He knows that when he prays, he's in the throne room, in the heavenly throne room. I have been in heaven and tasted of heavenly joys. That was his constant pattern, to enter heaven, to pray and fight on behalf of the church in his land. And you know what happened? The Scottish Reformation happened. The whole nation of Scotland was transformed. In fact, later in, in, in Knox's history of the Scottish Reformation, he says it was as though men reigned from the sky. When he prayed, it's as if heaven opened and godly men just fell like rain upon the land. His prayers pried open heaven and gained blessing for his people, for his land. God heard, God answered, and history was changed through the prayers of John Knox. One man praying before God transformed a nation. Knox says in response to his prayers, God raised up so many godly men to do the work. It was like they rained out of the sky. And everyone knew it was Knox's prayers that had accomplished this, that Knox's prayers were the driving force behind the Scottish Reformation. Queen Mary, who was his arch opponent, said she feared the prayers of Knox more than any army. Again, Knox, through his prayers, single-handedly transformed a nation. His prayers sent history in a new and different direction. I mean, I don't want to offend anybody here today, but the Scots were complete barbarians before the Scottish Reformation. He transformed that nation, made it one of the most powerful and influential nations in the world. Without his prayers, though, you can say there would have been no Scottish Reformation. He wrestled with God in prayer in the heavenly throne room, and he got blessed. He fought Satan in prayer, and he got victory. He went to the throne of grace for help, and he got it. He got that mercy he saw. Now, let me wrap this up. I, I don't want you to think that these stories I'm telling you are just quaint tales from of old that we can look back and say, that's oh, so great. That happened then, but of course nothing like that could happen today. No, I want these stories to inspire us to pray in similar ways, to bring change in our own lives and to redirect history. I mean, it looks like our nation, our culture is headed for disaster. 
It looks like we're headed for disaster. Could the prayers of God's people avert it? Could we change the course of our nation through prayer? I would say there's no other way but through prayer. The history of Christendom is full of impressive stories of God's people working and praying their way to victory, overcoming crises and turning away disaster and conquering the enemies of Christ's kingdom. But you know, it's easy to think of church history as a museum, and we can go into that museum and we can see the halls of Christendom past and how they're full of victory banners and statues of the great saints. And we can go by the John Knox statue and be so thankful for that and then see the Scottish Reformation banner and be excited about that. But the point of this is not just to visit the museum of Christendom and look at what God has done in the past. No, the point is to act in the present to change the future, to change the direction, to change the flow, the way things are going. The point of all this is to make history in our own day so another banner can be hung, so more statues can be put up in the Hall of Christendom, in the Museum of Christendom. But if you want to make history, if you want to shape history, prayer is the way to do it. Prayer is the central calling of the church. Prayer is authority. Prayer is power. Through prayer, we change the world. Satan dreads nothing more than the prayers of the saints. And I would say one of Satan's chief aims is to keep us from prayer, to distract us from prayer, to get us to do anything other than pray. Satan does not fear a prayerless Christian. But when we pray, that's when Satan trembles. We fight sin and we fight Satan through prayer. Look at your own life. Look at the world. What do we need? We need help. We need so much help. There's only one way to get that help. Only one place you're going to find it. And that's the throne of grace. So go there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.